From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You may have seen them recently on TV, online, or in the newspaper. Ads from U.S. tobacco companies explaining the dangers of their products, really. These corrective statements are part of a court settlement which found the tobacco companies guilty of racketeering. On today's program, we'll discuss the fight against big tobacco with a Mayo Clinic expert. Seventy million pages of previously secret documents that tell what they knew, when they knew it, and what they did about it. Not only did they keep it secret, they had a public relations campaign to mislead the public. Also on the program, new technologies for diabetes patients. And how to prevent motion sickness. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. This past November, the major U.S. tobacco companies were required to begin running court-ordered television and newspaper ads that tell the American public the truth about the dangers of smoking and secondhand smoke. The ads, called corrective statements, will run for one year on the major television networks during prime time and will run in print and online in about 50 newspapers. These corrective statements are part of the 2006 ruling in a Justice Department lawsuit which sought to punish cigarette makers for decades of deceiving the public about the dangers of their product. So why did it take more than 10 years for these ads to run? Hmm. We'll find out. Here to discuss is Emeritus Director of the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center, Dr. Richard Hurt. Welcome back to the program. We're glad you said yes to joining us. Glad to be here. Dr. Hurt, nice to see you again. Nice to see you. You know, you are retired or emeritus, as we say at the Mayo Clinic, but I think you're probably as active as ever in the fight against smoking and big tobacco. Well, not as active as ever because the treatment center that we have here, the Nicotine Dependence Center, is still going on, and I don't really have a lot to do with that in the day-to-day operations. I'm involved with Global Bridges, which is an international uh, organization we formed many years ago to help people around the world understand how to treat tobacco dependence and advocate for tobacco policy change. So I'm still on that executive team, and I'm doing tobacco trials in Florida as an expert witness. So the big tobacco companies uh, have been found guilty, correct? And guilty of what? And and tell us the whole scenario. How did this start? Well, the suit was brought back in the time of Bill Clinton, when Bill Clinton was president, uh, against the major tobacco companies because of their decades of deceit and basically lying and deceiving the public. And Judge Gladys Kessler was the judge in that case, uh, and she's a federal judge in Washington, and the trial uh, took many months to complete, and they were found guilty of violating the racketeering statutes, the federal racketeering statutes. So they were found guilty of being racketeers, basically. And one of the rulings that you made, among many others, was that they had to come clean and tell the public what they had previously been secret and kept secret and hidden from the public. But also they had a public relations campaign to basically mislead and deceive the public. So these ads are what they call corrective statements, but I, I like to think about it as it basically admissions of guilt that they had been deceiving the public all these decades. And so those, those were mandated in 2006 
and it's been now 11, 11 years, years. Yeah. 11 years since because. So, but the, was the first cases, they were in the mid nineties. What year was that? Well, the first case, the first big case was in Minnesota in right. 1998. Okay. That was the largest big case. But then the second largest case was the Department of Justice case that we're talking about now. But that would not have happened had it not been for Minnesota because Minnesota uh, caused the release of previously secret documents that no one had ever seen before. And so a lot of the, the evidence that was put into the Department of Justice case was there because of Minnesota. Had Minnesota not occurred, this would never have happened. Secret documents? Secret. Thousands. There are now over 70 million pages of previously secret documents available on the website called the Legacy Library at the University of California, San Francisco. Over 70 million pages of previously secret documents that tell what they knew, when they knew it, and what they did about it. Uh, In other words, they knew how harmful tobacco smoking was, cigarette smoking was a long time ago, but withheld the information from the public. They did, and they knew this back in the early 1950s, 60-plus years ago. And not only did they not tell the public what they knew, they had a public relations campaign to create doubt about what they call the health charges without actually denying it. Those are their words that they used. So they not only did they keep it secret, they had a public relations campaign to mislead the public. And that's what these documents uh, these these ads are trying to do to correct some of that. Uh, and, you know, you talk about 10 years ago that the, the case was, uh, they were found guilty in 2006. The old adage is that give them an inch and they'll buy another decade. And that's mm. what they do. Well, uh, you know, I can that's remember fine. seeing an ad years ago that said more doctors smoke camels than any other brand. <laughs> So I mean, if the doctors are smoking, it must be okay, huh? Well, that was part of that was part of their ad campaign, and of course, that evolved into Joe Camel. It evolved into Virginia Slims. All the other things that they did over the years to basically market their products. In 1998, when the Minnesota court case was going on, that's when I first became aware of who you were. Tell me what your role was in that case, and what happened to the money. Yeah, don't, I don't want to say, I was trying to watch his blood pressure. I didn't want to ask him that. But I think a lot of people cast you as some sort of anti-smoking zealot. Tell I, me I, what your role was in 1988. Well, I, 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 zealot is probably not the word I would use. I, I'm really more interested in helping people to stop smoking or helping people never to start. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where my, my drive is, helping people to overcome this serious addiction. Um, I was the first witness in the Minnesota tobacco trial and, and it was, it was, I was granted permission by the Mayo Clinic Board of Governors and ac- ac- eventually from the Board of Trustees. The executive committee of the Board of Trustees had to approve my participation because it was very unusual for a male physician to be involved in a court case in which no direct patient was involved. Uh-huh. But we made the case that this was the this was in Minnesota, is in our backyard. Uh, it would affect all of the patients in from Minnesota and many others outside of that. And it was the right thing to do because had we not been present in the Minnesota tobacco trial as addictions experts, then our absence would have been conspicuous, and the tobacco companies made a big deal of that. So we were proved to do that. So I was the first witness in the Minnesota trial in 1998. 
Is it when you uh, found out about those 70 million pages of evidence that you realized how bad the tobacco companies were, or did you already know that? Well, we already kind of knew that they were they were bad people because they were promoting a product, and they knew this, and we knew that they knew this, that if used as, as, as recommended by the manufacturers, kills over 63% of the customers. Think about that a second. So this is a product that if it's used as recommended by the manufacturer, kills almost two-thirds of the people who use it. You can't name another product that does that. You can't name another product that fails over 60% of the time and still is on the market, much less one that kills so many people. It kills half a million people a year in the United States alone. So we knew things like that. But what we didn't know are how, how, how sophisticated they were in manipulating the nicotine in the cigarettes. Uh, the secret of the Marlboro was not the theme from the Magnificent Seven or the Cowboys or all that stuff. The secret of the Marlboro was adding ammonia to the tobacco to freebase the nicotine. Which happened by accident, right? No. They had, well, I thought they put the ammonia in between the sheets of tobacco to, for, for some reason, and then they said, wow, this, this isn't that – you told me well, that well, a long but time they, you know, there's one, there's one executive from the uh, – I forgot which uh, company – said, we put ammonia in there for the roasty, toasty taste. He, he actually <laughs> said that with a straight face in the Minnesota trial. But, but the ammonia raises the pH of the tobacco. And it freebases the nicotine. They were freebasing nicotine before the drug culture knew how to freebase cocaine. And that was, so once, once everybody else, all the other companies figured out that Philip Morris was making more money, more, selling more cigarettes by adding ammonia, guess what they did? They all did, did the, the same, same thing. thing. So what happened? There was a, there was a big monetary settlement in the Minnesota suit against the big tobacco. And the money, as I recall, was supposed to be used, uh, in, for anti-smoking campaigns and to help people stop smoking. It didn't happen, did it? It, it only happened a small percentage. There were a little over $200 million set aside for a new, a new nonprofit organization, which was originally called MPAT, M-P-A-A-T, which is now called Clearway. Uh, and that is a still an existing nonprofit in Minnesota that has a life expectancy of 25 years from the time of the settlement. The rest of the money, the other five or six billion dollars, uh, a very large percentage was go to the public, to the Department of Health for prevention campaigns. And uh, during uh, Governor Pawlenty's, uh, uh governorship, they took that money and plugged the deficit in the budget. And then later on, uh, they took the rest of the money that, that was coming in every year to plug holes in, in the budget. Uh, and, and so the money, the politicians in the state took the money basically and used it for budget reduction. All right, Dr. Richard Hurt, Emeritus Director of the Nicotine Dependence Center. We're talking about big tobacco and the corrective ads. Time for a short break, but when we come back, we've got a myth or matter of fact. Uh, electric cigarettes can help you quit smoking. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are with the Emeritus Director of the Mayo Nicotine Dependent, Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependent Center, Dr. Richard Hurd. He's told us about the lawsuit against big tobacco and the corrective ads. I was sitting behind him at the basketball game and I said, you need to come talk to us about those ads. Uh, That's that's why we're here. I prefer to call them admissions of guilt or confessions, not corrective (laughs) statements. They're confessions of what they knew, when they knew it, and what they did about it. Here's our myth or matter of fact, Dr. Hurt. Electronic cigarettes can help you quit smoking. Is that a myth or a fact? It's really a myth, and and there have been a few studies that have studied uh, it in randomized trials, and there are just a few. And it's been tried against other more conventional things like nicotine patches, and it doesn't seem to help people stop smoking compared to placebo or compared to other well-known therapies. The problem with e-cigarettes is that they're not, there's not just one variety. There's hundreds of different varieties and they deliver nicotine in different ways and different amounts. So until they're proven to be both safe and effective, those are the two standards we use for any drug of a, to be approved for use. Until it's proven to be both safe and effective in helping people to stop smoking, then we're, we're not going to use them. Does that mean some people use them and and can stop smoking. Well, some people do that. Some people use hypnosis to stop smoking, and and some people use acupuncture. But none of those three things I just mentioned have been shown to be effective compared to placebo. And so the safety part of it, are e-cigarettes safer than smoking a conventional cigarette, a Marlboro camel? Yes, they are. Well, they they don't have as much stuff. Cigarettes have over 7,000 chemicals, over 60 known carcinogens. Cancer-causing agents, yeah. E-cigarettes have some of that stuff, but much less than conventional cigarettes. So I usually say, well, are e-cigarettes safer to use than than Marlboro Camels? Yes. Are e-cigarettes safer to use than just breathing air? No. They're not. <laughs> well, of course no. not. <laughs> well, of course not, because they've got, they don't have nicotine, they have some nitrosamines, they have some other things in them. And, and so there's no regulation of them. Uh, so we don't know exactly what all is in them. So you were a director of the, or co-director of the uh, Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center for years, but I always liked your story about, you're a form, former smoker. How and why did you quit? Well, I stopped smoking dozens of times, sometimes for as long as 30 minutes, sometimes for a half a day. I didn't finally stop smoking for good until... Two packs a day, though, right? Two, to three, two to three packs a day. Oh, my God. Marlboro. Marlboro. Oh, yeah. Well, I alternated Marlboro and Bel Air because you can't smoke three packs of Marlboros a day and have your mouth feel so I had, to, I, had to, I had to smoke a menthol in between because that kind of freshened oh, things yeah. up. So I would alternate between a Marlboro... And a Bel Air. So at night I'd go to bed. I'd have my last cigarette. I put that pack on the nightstand on the bottom. I put the other one on top of it. I put my Zippo lighter on top of that. (laughs) Put my glasses around them. And, and so in the morning it was easy. Glasses on, lighter up. I didn't remember which one I had had the night before because this is always on the bottom. I mean, it sounds crazy. But you had that's, a system. Yeah. In Kentucky. You grew up well, in Kentucky, but it's, right? it's, it's, but that's, so, that's the way people who make sure they have their supply, who have a dependence on a drug, you make sure you got it right. And, and anyway, so I, I stopped smoking by going to the smoker's clinic at Methodist Hospital. Oh, when you got to Rochester? Were I you was. on the staff? I smoked, I smoked right through the time of my college, medical school, internship, two years in the Army, three years of fellowship here, 
and I stopped smoking dozens of times in between, but finally stopped smoking on November 22nd, 1975. It was Saturday. I was 3.30 in the afternoon. I was home. It's, 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 uh, it was a life-changing event for me. And the two heroes, well, actually three heroes, Dr. Hepper, Norm, Norm Hepper. Hepper. Pulmonologist. Who's, who's, he was a lung specialist. He's a pulmonary physician who founded, founded the Smokers Clinic. And then Rosalie Ciarto and Bud Matson were the two two people that managed the and directed the Smokers Clinic. Wow. It was a life-changing event for me. And that was, you were how old, do you remember? You were what, 30? 30 31. Some, 31. Mm-hmm. Why wow. is it so hard to quit? Well, it's so hard to quit because what happens in the brain are the neuroreceptors, the little receptors in the brain get accustomed to very, these very high doses of nicotine that you take 20 to 30 to 40 times a day. And they get used to that, and therefore they increase in numbers. They're, they're, what what happens is they get upregulated. So biologically, there are more receptors in the brain of people who are smokers than there are non-smokers. All of us have the receptors, but smokers end up with more of them. So if you don't feed them what they want, then they object to that withdrawal symptoms, irritability, anxiety, frustration. And those receptors are there, uh, and once you stop smoking, they do reduce back to the same number you started out with, but it takes a few months for that to happen. But they never really forget what this is all about. So the cravings can come later on after a person stops smoking, and they can occur and be very, very intense. But we've got a lot better ways to help people stop smoking now at the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center. And the the success rate, it it continues to go up, doesn't it? I mean, it's pretty good. It's very good. But we're dealing with a a drug addiction or drug dependence that's very difficult because of the cigarette being the most efficient drug delivery device that's ever been invented. It gets nicotine to the brain within five heartbeats. I mean, it's just like a super highway to the brain. Plus... People who are smokers smoke 20 to 30 to 40 cigarettes a day. So the doses you get over a period of time is just are enormous, much more than you get from any other drug of dependence. So the success rate has been good. We have programs, individual face-to-face counseling. We have bedside counseling in the hospital. And we have a residential treatment program for people to come into a residential unit for eight days of very intensive treatment. That's just the best we can do. All right, Dr. Richard Hurd, so good to have you on the program. Thanks so much for coming back. Even though you're emeritus, you're still uh, in the thick of it and helping people stop smoking. That's the goal. All right, the truth about tobacco with Dr. Richard Hurd. Look for a corrective statement or, as Dr. Hurd says, an admission of guilt on TV or in your newspaper. They're out there now. Dr. Hurd, thanks. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about new technologies being used to help patients with diabetes. Yes, Dr. Sanj Kakar will join me for that interview and then later on in the show, how to prevent motion sickness. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. Foods containing fiber help you in important ways, including keeping your digestive tract functioning properly. A high-fiber diet also can reduce the risk of heart disease, diabetes, and obesity. But how much fiber do you need, and what ways can you get it? Dietitian Kate Zaratsky says... It's good to start your day with some high-fiber foods. Zaratsky says the right breakfast can get you more than a quarter of the way to your daily fiber goal. High-fiber cereals are an easy and tasty way to get your fiber in. Also, fruits 
are a good source of fiber, and nuts and seeds. So are whole grain products. Vegetables offer lots of roughage, and beans and legumes are great sources of fiber. Now, men under 50 should strive to get at least 38 grams of fiber a day. Older men should strive for 30 grams. Women under 50 should aim for at least 25 grams, and older women aim for at least 21 grams. My recommendation is, as people increase the amount of fiber in their diet to meet those recommendations, is to do so slowly and gradually, and drink plenty of water. You'll be promoting bowel health and protecting against bad cholesterol and diabetes. Plus, since fiber stays in your stomach longer, you may find it easier to maintain a healthy weight. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar, and I'm Tracy McRae. For those living with diabetes, managing their disease is an important step to maintaining or improving their health. Depending on what type of diabetes you have, blood sugar monitoring, insulin, and oral medications may play a role in your treatment. Type 1 diabetes, once known as juvenile diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes, is a chronic condition in which the pancreas produces little or no insulin. While there's no cure for type 1 diabetes, new technology is improving treatment for type 1 diabetics. Here to discuss new diabetes technologies is Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Yogesh Kudva. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kudva. It's nice to meet you. Same here. Thank you, Tracy. The treatment is different, certainly for type 1 diabetes、uh, versus type 2. Explain for us. So, in type 1 diabetes, individuals who have the disorder do not have the ability to make. Any insulin of their own, so they are completely dependent on insulin being provided from outside. The way that is done is usually with four to five injections of insulin a day, or by using an insulin pump to actually deliver the insulin. When an insulin pump is used, the the insulin can be delivered all the time and also、uh, at the time of eating a meal. So, with type two diabetes, these patients then have insulin. Yes, they are able to make at least some insulin. Now, the ability to make insulin decreases with time. So, with individuals with type two diabetes generally being diagnosed, let's say fourth decade, fifth decade or so, and now living for several decades, it's very possible that ultimately they'll end up with making very little insulin. Do we know what causes type one diabetes? Yes.、Um, In mo- most individuals with type 1 diabetes, about 80% of individuals,、uh, we are able to test them for certain antibodies. So these antibodies are to certain proteins, and there are four different proteins that have been identified that they could have antibodies to. So if we did the antibody test, about 80% would rule in positive for、mm. these antibodies. So then we are left with another 20% where either they,、uh, we, there, is a, there is an antibody we just don't know against what protein it is,、hmm. or truly it is immune mediated and it is not associated with antibodies. Or the third explanation is it's some other kind of diabetes, and we still don't know. So I just want to return for a second to the issue of、uh, the ability not to make any insulin.、Mm-hmm. So when we try to manage these individuals with type one diabetes who don't make any insulin, it's very difficult to mimic what the body does. So with current such technologies, insulin pumps as well as injections,、uh, when patients test their glucose four 
to 10 times a day 50% of these readings are below a number such as 70 and above a number such as 180 and i use these numbers because these are generally accepted numbers for good control in the last 18 years now we've had a continuous glucose monitoring technology which enables glucose to be checked every 5 minutes or so on an automated basis because of this ability to do continuous glucose monitoring that signal can be used to change insulin delivery through an insulin pump and that is the artificial pancreas system so at this time since march of this year an artificial pancreas made by metronic called 670g has been approved and is available for clinical use and it represents the culmination of about uh, 40 years of research 40 years of research and are you, so you're testing it with patients now right so at the moment it is clinically approved so certain patients could go ahead and have it through their endocrinology office by doing appropriate paperwork but there is also a research study involving this um and we are a center for this research uh-huh. study so we could enroll individuals using an insulin pump or using a pump and a continuous glucose monitor but without the control algorithm or those on injections so this is a metronic sponsored study and we are a site for it and there are several other sites around the country and the world there is also competing technology mm-hmm. uh, for which we are also for which we are also a site So there is a there are a lot of research opportunities now for patients and the exciting thing about these opportunities are that by taking part in these studies patients could have real treatment benefit. And what is so you talked about this artificial pancreas yeah. what is that is it is it a device that's planted into the skin? Yeah. What what exactly is it? Yeah that's a great question. So an artificial pancreas uh, is a bit of a simplification <laughs> because as we know I appreciate that. <laughs> As we know the pancreas uh, uh has got two parts to it. One part is the part that allows us to digest food and the second part is the part that allows us to process and store the digested food, you know? So the food is digested and that results in an increase in the blood stream of glucose and fatty acids and certain amino acids which make up protein. So uh, with a meal there is a part of the pancreas that releases insulin and other related peptides so the insulin is the main mediator of this fuel storage mechanism so in the artificial pancreas as we use it for type mm-hmm. 1 diabetes there are two components there is a component that is the continuous glucose monitor that checks the glucose all the time every 5 minutes and then there is the insulin pump that delivers the insulin and then there is a control algorithm which takes the continuous glucose monitoring signal including the current state of the glucose the rate of change of glucose and the prediction of what's going to happen to the glucose in the next 30 minutes or so wow. and use all of this information in real time to change insulin delivery so that is the artificial pancreas system that we are using through metronic if you read the popular press they will also use another terminology for it and it's called hybrid closed loop so closed loop is just a terminology indicating that there are components of the system and the components are interacting with each other so the loop is closed as opposed to an open loop where the components are given back to the patient 
to take a decision. Mm. The term hybrid is used because the insulin that is being delivered all the time is being modulated with this control algorithm. But at mealtime, the patient needs to get involved and needs to put certain information into the insulin pump in order to help control. So, Dr. Kudva, when you look in your crystal ball in the future, (laughs) do you think that this is the be-all and end-all, or do you think this is the beginning of another long 40-year journey? Hopefully not. Well, I don't think it is uh, uh, beginning and end-all. I think it is the end of a beginning. Okay. And I think the beginning of a lot more sophisticated things to come. For example, our experience with these technologies is quite short duration at this time. We have a lot of experience with the insulin pump use, for example, but can we use insulin pump for several decades? You see? Mm-hmm. So remember, insulin is usually released by the pancreas mm-hmm. into the circulation in the abdomen. So when we do the insulin pump here, usually the insulin pump infuses insulin below the skin on the belly wall, or certain insulin pumps can be used at other sites like buttock and upper arm, and again, they would infuse the insulin below the skin there. So that is an unnatural site for insulin to be in, and with insulin, there are other diluents And so there could be some changes that happen in the skin over time. So how long will this last is a question. Now, continuous glucose monitors are disposable. The probe has to be changed every 7 to 14 days, and it has to be secured in place with tape. And tape allergy is part of Mm -hmm. the challenge for modern-day people. It's Mm -hmm. Allergies are part of our life mm-hmm. and so tape allergy is a is a significant part of the life of patients who have to use tape for everyday management so one way forward has been for the continuous glucose monitoring technology to get less intrusive and for the patient involvement and patient burden to be less so one solution for that is to have an implantable continuous glucose monitor so there is one such technology being reviewed by, uh, reviewed by the FDA right now. Mm-hmm. So the product is called Eversense, and the company is Sensionics. And what that will uh, enable us to do is actually implant the continuous glucose monitor just below the skin of the arm. And then that is approved in Europe for three months. Mm-hmm. Six-month studies are going on. And the idea is this will go on for longer. The future is not that far away. No, no. The future's, uh, future is happening. And <laughs> I think if there are patients listening, you can be an active part of it. And you can help create it. So go, that's the vision here. Talk to your physician. Yes, absolutely. We've been talking about new diabetes technologies for treating type 1 diabetes with Mayo Clinic endocrinologist Dr. Yogesh Kudva. Thank you once again for joining us, Dr. Kudva. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, what causes motion sickness and how to prevent it? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Maybe you've experienced it, that uneasy, queasy feeling in your stomach when you're riding in the car or maybe on the cruise ship. (laughs) It's commonly called motion sickness. And it can strike suddenly and progress from that feeling of uneasiness in your stomach to a, a cold sweat, dizziness, even vomiting. Why am I starting to kind of feel that way just even talking about this? If you struggle with motion sickness, the good news is you might be able to avoid it or lessen the effect by planning ahead. Here to discuss is the Director of Travel and Tropical Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Rizwan Sohail. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Sohail. 
Thank you, Tracy. It's good to be back. All right. Always good to have you on the program talking about all things travel related. Do you understand this condition well enough to know why some people have motion sickness and others don't? Yeah, I think one way to think about it is just like in jet lag when there's a disconnect between the internal sleep-ache cycles and the external light-dark cycles. Similarly, in motion sickness, when there is a disconnect between how body perceives its internal movement or position compared to the external perception of movement. So, you know, we have a lot of sensors in our body. We have sensors in the ear, skin, spinal cord, sinuses, which transmit brain signals about the position and the movement of the body, where our eyes look at the external environment and feed the brain the movement that's going on in the environment. And when the brain gets conflicting information from the internal sensors and the external movement, it gets confused. And that's what really leads to this sense of motion sickness. Is that why people have motion sickness so often on the water? Because they're not on the water that often. And so if they go on a cruise, their motion sickness is is such a problem. Yeah, and I think part of the reason cruise ships are worse than, let's say, personal transportation is because when you're traveling by car, you know, you can always stop the car, get off, take a short break, (laughs) get some fresh air. But if you're stuck on a cruise ship, you can't really jump, you know, in the middle of the ocean. And then partly because if you don't have a position like next to the window or sitting on the deck where you can see the horizon and your brain can, you know, reconcile the external and the internal signals, If you're stuck in the middle of the cabin and you can't see outside, then really your body perceives that you're stationary, but in fact you're moving, and that makes the motion sickness really bad at the sea. I have heard people say, again, since I haven't been on a cruise yet, (laughs) that they don't get motion sickness until they go on land after being in the boat. Why is that? Yeah, so it's interesting that some people actually get reverse motion sickness, and they instead of seasickness, they get the land sickness. And that's, again, because they may get their brain or the eyes may get used to being on water. And then when they get on the land, that's when brain has to kind of reconcile the internal and external signals, again, gets confused and leading to land sickness. That's a really interesting observation. Well, the other one I don't understand is when you're in a car, if you get motion sick, but only when you're in the back seat, not when you're in the front, just in the back. Why Why does that happen? So the motion sickness tends to get worse uh, depending on where your position is in a given uh, moving uh, mm-hmm. vehicle. So, for example, in the car, when you're sitting at the back, Compared to sitting in the front, sitting in the front, you're able to see ahead and you can see the horizon and you can focus on distant objects uh, which are not moving. If you're sitting in the back, people tend to usually focus on their, you know, they may be trying to read a book or maybe texting or watching movies or looking at their iPads. And when you're focusing on the objects that are near to you, again, it creates that mental conflict between the external movement and your body's perception of the internal movement leading to motion sickness. You just say, look out the window. (laughs) Stop reading and look out the window. In the backseat, all you see is mom and dad, and that's probably (laughs) why you get sick. Um, (laughs) So uh, does it help for most people to close their eyes when this happens, whether they're in a car or on a ship? For some people it might, but for most of the people, in fact, uh, facing their fears is what really helps. So you know, keeping their eyes open, looking at the horizon. If they're on the ship, you know, go on the deck, look outside. 
rather than closing your eyes. But occasionally there are some people who feel better by closing their eyes or wearing sunglasses or reclining or taking a nap. But most of the people, when they actually do get sick, uh, then trying to sleep or closing their eyes really doesn't work. So that might help to try to prevent motion sickness. But once you start to get that nauseated feeling, then really you really have to look outside the window. Dramamine is one of the medications that you can take, you know, before you get in the long car ride or go on a ship. What does Dramamine do? It makes people sleepy, so then it doesn't make sense to me that that works. Well, there's a non-drowsy formula. Oh, gotcha. So there are a number of medications that are available to deal with the or try to prevent the motion sickness. Uh, And they have both what we call antihistamine effects and anticholinergic effects. Mm -hmm. They tend to calm down your what we call autonomic nervous system that is involved in this perception of movement internally and externally. But the antihistamine effect, as you said, is problematic because that makes people more sleepy and drowsy. And we really don't want them to be that drowsy or sleepy because in some patients it can exacerbate their symptoms of motion sickness. Plus, we know that, you know, if you're sitting in a car, if you're the driver, you're less likely to get motion sickness, but then you can't drive if you've taken medicine that make you drowsy. All right. So when it comes to you've got somebody who comes into your office and they say motion sickness is a real problem for me, I'm going on a cruise, what do you tell them? So it depends on what the exposure is going to be, the short or long. So if they're going by car or a plane ride or bus or train, uh, I usually prefer to use uh, what's called meclizine or bonine. Uh, this doesn't make people as drowsy as Dramamine does. If they're going on a cruise and they previously have had bad motion sickness experience, then typically we tend to prescribe a medicine called scopolamine. It's a patch. They put it on your skin and it lasts for three days. And after that, you can put another patch. So that's really helpful for a prolonged exposure which you experience on the sea. Another thing to consider is the timing of when you start taking the medicine. So for short-acting medicine like Dramamine or Bonine, you just need to take them at least an hour before you are embarking on activity that can cause motion sickness. But patch can take good six to eight hours before it kicks in. So you shouldn't be putting it on while you're you know, boarding the cruise ship. It should be half a day before. Six to eight hours before, huh? Exactly. What about uh, other things? You, know, you look on the Internet and then they've got copper bracelets that help. And then there was an interesting one called PSI wristbands, which uses acupressure. I've you used those. That? Have you? I used those when I was um, pregnant for morning worked. sickness. Didn't it work? It felt like it did, but it didn't <laughs> matter to me if it did. It just felt like yeah. it did. Do they really work? Well, there are no good like scientific studies done on the use of wristbands, uh, but some people use them and they found them really helpful. I don't really see any harm in using it. Whether it's the placebo effect of wearing a wristband or not, if it works, go for it. All right. Well, at least we've got some options if motion sickness is a problem for you. Dr. Rizwan Sohail, Director of Travel and Tropical Medicine at Mayo Clinic, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tracy. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a health care professional. 
For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.